Navarro. Compagrillo, I, I, I love your boom more than I love my boom. You are the original boomer. I'm the original boomer, but you kind of like make it, made it better, you know, like more energetic, more like boom. boom. I was like boom, boom, boom. So anyway, so how's everybody doing? I hope everybody's well. The new year is kicking off. Crazy as always in the narco world, a lot of crazy things happening down here. But we've got a special episode right now talking not about our usual narcos, but about some narcas. <laughs> yes. And some fame, fame at last, fame at last. That's all Nar I can say. And we brought in the narcas specialist, <laughs> Deborah Bonello. You can see there with the Narcas book uh, recently published, profiling some of the queen pins, the female operators in the narco world across Latin America and the United States. Uh, a lot of crazy stories and information there. A lot of stuff we haven't seen that's been going on under our noses. And it's right there. These crazy figures in the Sinaloa cartel in Honduras, Guatemala, these crazy female Queen pins, which we'll talk about. So Deborah Bonello, uh, as some of you will know, Deborah Bonello has come straight from running Vice Mexico, running the whole operation of Vice Mexico, overseeing all of the cartel coverage, including with Luis Chaparro and many other great narco journalists. But there's a lot of crazy stuff happening in the narco journalist world right now. Vice Mexico is shut down. It's gone. Boom. So you have two, two former... Vice Latin America, not just Vice Mexico, Vice Latin America. Yeah, exactly. Vice Latin so, America's yeah. gone. Vice is on the decline. I've done a lot of great stuff over the years. It's on the decline. So now you're people there looking for that Vice stuff. You better start coming this way. We're already operating together uh, under a crew. We're calling ourselves Cartel Reports. That's expanding right across to all of these issues of drug addiction, organized crime, mafiosi governments and everything you can imagine we've got narcos and narcas both and narcas and narcas not forgetting the narcas so i know our, our youtube audience is is often heavily following heavily male and driving and following those sicario videos and stuff but uh remember that the narcas are a key role in this story Oh, well, and we, we did a story a couple of weeks ago before we got shut down about how uh, this Sakaria, this this like hit team in Tulum, was it Tulum? I forget where it was, but two of the Sicarios were Sicarias as well. Mm -hmm. So women are getting into the killing business as well. Murdering as well as trafficking drugs. So as we right get to the story before we go in, you want to support our work, you like what we do, we're going to have all of the details below. We've got all three of us now moving stories on Substacks. We'll give links to all of those. We've got buy me coffees, beers, pulques, uh, <laughs> teas, anything you want on the world. We've got links for all of that. So, you know, and and so get into it. So we're going to look at particularly five different narcas. And we're going to begin with one which you'll already know, although some of these you're not going to know, but this one you already know the most famous narco wife of all time, Emma Coronel. So, Debs, really tell us about Emma Coronel. Are we missing the story here? What's the real story about so, Emma? So, I mean, 
I, I wanted to start a little bit with telling you why I wrote the book in the first place, which was very much to do with, you know, I've been in Mexico 20 years. I've covered organized crime 20 years, um, not just in journalism, but working for think tanks, too. And it, it always seemed to me like and, and you know how important narrative is and how dominant narrative is um, in the way that crime is sort of documented and understood. And it just was really obvious to me how the only people we were seeing in terms of women in at least Latin American organized crime were kind of, you know, the Emmas. And she's she's a good place to start because she sort of fits into this kind of gender stereotype of mob wife. Right. She's beautiful. She's very produced. Um, her look has sort of spawned this whole beauty look that, you know, was started, I think, by the Colombian cartels back in the 80s and 90s. But it's really on steroids now with social media, the sort of big boob, big butt tiny waist, you know, uh, straightened hair, very, very white skin. Um, so she's kind of, you know, she's she's promoting this whole look, but she was also, as we saw, you know, she just got out of prison, I think it was a few months ago, for doing, uh, serving just three years, which is, which is a low sentence. In case anyone doesn't know, Emma Coronel is El Chapo's wife. And she um, met him when she was 17, in a beauty contest in Canelas Durango, if I'm not wrong. Um, I think Chapo, correct me if I'm wrong, was already about 30 years her senior um, and he was already on the lamb. So when she met him and fell in love with him, um, <laughs> they were like, you know, she knew exactly what she was getting into. Um, and I've often like written about the kind of marriage that her and Chapo would have had because you know, he was on the lam pretty much the entire time that they were together. Um, and when she pleaded guilty, you know, not only did she admit to spending his money, but helping um, oil the the final prison escape he made, which was it 2015, the one with the with the the motorbike on the rails in El Estado de Mexico. She was she was involved in that. But, you know, she she sort of had this in. in incredibly unusual life where she was tagged to this guy who was probably one of the most famous drug traffickers in the world. You know, his trial was kind of the biggest organized crime trial of probably our generation, right? And she was a, a daily uh, vision outside the court when his trial was taking place in New York. Um, and so when he went down and he got, and he got um, well, when he got extradited and then eventually sentenced, I actually interviewed the guy who taught Emma Coronel how to shoot a gun. And he said, after Chapo got extradited, she she felt very unprotected and she knew it was very unlikely that he was A, getting out of an American prison, no matter how much they paid in bribes, and B, um, you know, she has twin girls with El Chapo. And I think she started worrying for her for her safety. Los Chapitos, who took over the reins of part of the, the Sinaloa cartel when Chapo was sent away, um, are more, she's closer to their age than she is actually to their, their fathers. Um, and, you know, they have a reputation for being pretty, pretty violent and entitled millennials. And I think she feared that she was at risk and the girls were at risk. Um, so she wanted to learn how to defend herself. And eventually, of course, she ended up going to the U.S. Vice reported that she had, she was she handed herself in. She wasn't she wasn't arrested and she pleaded guilty. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I think her power and this is this is where the narrative in the book diverges from Emma's story and like and, and stories like it. Her power really comes from her attachment to Chapel, her association with him, um, because all of all of her influence and the interest in her was derived from the fact that she was married to him. Not so much that she was deeply involved in the family business, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So she was famous for being. Uh, this beautiful Buchona and the woman, the trophy of El Chapo. Now, Luis Chaparro, I know you know you you like the whole Buchona scene. Now you know you're, you're kind of into that into hanging around that scene. So you know what, what do you make of Emma Coronel and the whole Buchona scene? Yeah, and I have a, a follow up question: Do the Chapitos like her or not? Because I heard there was there was some tension there. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a one thing. Uh, I think Emma Coronel was also known for. He's he's that right. He was he was already kind of like a mid higher up ranking member of the Sinaloa cartel in, in Durango and one of the factions working with uh, with El Chapo. So it's basically uh, so it's basically a said like um, Emma, El Chapo married the daughter of his friend, right? Over over his colleague. That's that's how the whole thing started, uh, right? And and and, it's, and when you talk about Los Chapitos, I mean she knows that. Los Chapitos are definitely after her. There, there is a lot of like family drama around it because Los Chapitos never really, for what I understand, they never really liked Emma Coronel. They, they felt it was a bit of like, um, I don't know, she wanted to, or she was uh, about to get half of uh, what El Chapo had and probably left the Chapitos out of it. And they think, they believe, this is something we don't really know that she actually snitched against them when she was behind bars. That's that's a whole right. myth, right? I was going to say, when she was in custody, remember the, the latest indictment that um, the US government issued against the Chapitos talks about feeding victims to tigers. Yeah. Um, uh, there were some other sort of grisly details, but that indictment emerged, um, I think, just before Emma came out of custody. Now... How much of it she contributed to, who knows? But as Chapo's wife and as, you know, a, a, an occasional Sinaloan resident, I don't doubt she had a pretty privileged privileged knowledge of how the cartel was being run. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And also on, during the interview with uh, with Damaso, he, 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 he said that. He, he told me that Emma Coronel was one of the biggest players in terms of speaking against El, El, El Chapo, but specifically against Los Chapitos. Um, I guess those chapitos are now fighting against anyway everyone right now. Like these days, everyone is mad at them. They they're they're the public enemy number one, and Emma Coronel. It's no exception. I think they're they're also off to together. Although she opened up this new Instagram that hasn't got a lot of followers because her handle it's kind of like tricky to find, and she's been recently in in Culiacan and and else. I mean. She was recently in Culiacán in like a beauty, whatever. She mostly is in LA area, uh, partying with her former legal representative, now turns corrido singer, mariachi singer, <laughs> Mariel Colón, which is her another former lawyer, uh, right? Her former yeah, lawyer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I think I think she's in some way she's played her cards well recently. Yeah. I mean. In being in this crazy position, going from being uh, some you know girl in this little village 
and a beauty queen at 17 to being the wife of the most infamous drug trafficker in the world, if not the most powerful, but the most infamous, to being in prison in the United States, to kind of getting out, making deals, playing all these different sides. And she's still young in her 30s. She's got a future. Um, so has she played her cards well, do you think, uh, Dibs? I mean, how... Uh, should we see her in a positive light or a negative light? Or how do you, would you make sense of her story? I mean, it's interesting that she was in Culiacan. And the, the advantage that Emma has that very few of the other women in my book have is that she's a dual, she's a, she's an American citizen and she's a Mexican citizen. So she can move very easily between those two countries. If I were her, I'd be super nervous about going back to Culiacan. I mean, clearly she must have had some guarantee of security or what have you. Um because I think a lot of the problems that cooperating witnesses, which most of the women in the major cases that I covered are, is that, you know, after cooperating and like snitching on people and telling prosecutors what they know, they, they're freed, right? And like that has consequences as, as Minilik, the son of Damaso, um, who was the right-hand man of El Chapo, was was talking to you about right like it's kind of a, a dangerous business i did read somewhere also that she's she's like launched this business brand based on chapel and she's going to bring out a whole bunch of merch and um you know capitalize on that which makes sense to me and you know i can't i don't know whether you remember but she did the cartel crew series where she was mm -hmm. supping champagne on the on the deck of some yacht like she's you know she's very much played into that whole bling image I'm sorry. Um, that she she was doing that series along with the uh, with the with the wives of Los Gemelos, the twins, right, the Flores twins. That yeah. they're also now in prison, but they're facing a lot more years than what Emma Coronel did in prison. The, which right, is the, real, the, the real star of that cartel crew is the son of Griselda Blanco, which we'll get on to later. Right. He's the real star there. But anyway, so get on moving on. With this. I'll just I'll just finish though because I did because in terms of Emma and her future life, Bonnie Clapper, who's a, a U.S. De, a prosecutor turned defense uh, lawyer, she I was asking her about Emma a few months ago, and she said the thing is that everyone knows who she is. So like if she tries to get her girls into private schools or what have you, I think it's going to be challenging for her to escape that kind of fame. So it probably depends where she is. Like. She'll probably do, do okay in Miami where they love that kind of stuff, but like perhaps less so in um, New York. I don't know, but it's going to be very hard for her to blend in, I would say. And that's all yeah. about that kind of recreation of, of drug traffickers rehabilitating themselves and how much even that we should look at that as being good or bad. But now a lot of, you know, everyone's heard of Emma Coronel, but a lot of these people they haven't heard of that you investigated and looked for in a book like Luz Fajardo. Who is Luz Fajardo? What's her story? So Luz Fajardo Campos was um, arrested in Colombia. I think it was in 2013. Um, she was there doing some work for an associate of hers. She was arrested, you know, um, on drug charges in Bogota. And a few days or weeks after she was arrested, her adult sons were murdered in Hermosillo in Northern Mexico. She was charged with running her own independent drug trafficking organization out of Sinaloa, 
one of the witnesses in her case actually referred to her as the female Chapo and that she'd had numerous conversations with Chapo on the phone. What I can say with confidence, and I don't know whether you guys agree, but I don't think she would have been able to run a cocaine trafficking ring, bringing dope from from Colombia across Honduras and through Mexico to the US without the approval of the Guzman family. Like, I don't think, I, I don't think you can do that without them signing off on it because they kind of control that business. She was born in um, very rural Sinaloa and studied law, brought up by her grandparents. She, um, so she was kind of a middle-class woman with an education, you know, she could have done other things and she decided to get into the, get into the drug business. She didn't have a husband who worked with her from the, from the, the evidence that I saw in court. And she only counted in terms of the men in her organization, she counted on her sons Um, And so when they were murdered, her interpretation of that, according to her criminal lawyer, was it was a warning to her to keep her mouth shut once she was in U.S. custody. Um, And that that message got to her loud and clear. I mean, she of all the women in my book, I think she was the only one who didn't plead guilty. She went to court. And as you know, when you do that. Your, the, the trial is sort of all your dirty laundry on show um, and you can't negotiate your sentence. And she got a really harsh sentence. You know, I think they they sent her down for either 23 or 27 years, I forget. Um, but according to her lawyer, who, of course, you have to take it with a pinch of salt, but her silence was due to um, fear for her family. You know, I met her dad when I was doing research for this book, in Culiacan, he's he's his her grandfather, sorry, who brought her up. He still um, lives there. So does a sister of hers who's married to a local politician. So I think she she felt like she didn't want any more harm to come to her family, and that that was an inevitability if she pled guilty and 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 collab collaborate cooperated with the DA. So do, now, do you think? I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you think Deb that that uh that there there is a difference on how a narco, like a male, takes these kind of threats or the killing of a, a son uh, than what a mother, how a mother deals with the whole thing, how, how a woman deals with all this thing. Is there, is there actually a difference? I mean, I'd be interested to compare. I remember the, the you know, when Chapo's son was murdered, I think by the Beltran Levas, right, in Culiacan. I think the response was was explosive, right? And yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, her response was to sort of shut down. And actually, my sources tell me that she, she's never really been the same since her sons was, were killed. Like it had a really very severe effect on her mental health. So perhaps, yeah, there was less of a kind of, uh, what's the word, guns out response. And it, yeah. it, and, it, and it had the impact that the murderers were looking for, which was to shut her down. Um, And the other thing that's really interesting about her case, there are lots of telephone transcripts in the court documents where she's talking to people in the US who've kind of messed it up and like lost shipments or gotten arrested. And at no point does she threaten them with violence. At no point is she like, uh, you know, we're coming for you or whatever. I mean, I don't want to sound like some some yeah. <laughs> Netflix series. I mean and I'm thinking well maybe she outsourced the violence to her sons or she outsourced it to the Chapitos or Chapo and just being allied with him sort of was a was enough of a calling card I don't know but she she didn't 
carry herself and communicate in that way that was like, we're going to fuck you up because you lost that drug shipment, if you know what I mean, which is also super interesting about her. Yeah. I guess when we get a couple more, but when we get to Griselda Blanco, she's a woman who did use a lot of violence and did play a very, uh, a very tough game. But I think it's very interesting how within the Sinaloa cartel, we know, which we've talked a lot about really what is the Sinaloa cartel, this big federation of gangsters, we have a lot of people who can create their own business with inside it and like pay off El Chapo or pay off El Mayo or pay off El Chapo Isidro, the, you know, some some of the big bosses, they can still uh, move that uh, that cocaine. But now getting a bit further south, you also profile somebody in Honduras, um, Digna Valle. That's right. That's right. So, so the so, Valle organization was in the crosshairs of the DEA big time in 2013. And one of the most, one of the trials I'm most looking forward to this year, actually in the US, is that of Juan Orlando Hernandez, the former Honduran president. Now her family were working and with and aided and abetted by Juan Orlando, or so say um, a lot of Honduran narcos who got taken down around that time. It was the Valle Cartel, um, and all of the, the Cachiro organization as well. Um, so the Valle Cartel, her family were based in El Espiritu, which is just on the border of Honduras with Guatemala. I don't know whether you guys have been there. I mean, it's 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 pretty it's a pretty atypical border, but like, you know, um, sort of NGO reports say that it's one of the most lawless, dangerous parts of Latin America. Um, and so they start her family started off as, as contrabandistas, you know, getting cattle across the border for like $80 a pop and per ton of cocaine, they moved across from Honduras to Guatemala for the Sinaloa cartel. She was making about $800,000 according to court documents. So, you know, when the cocaine train came knocking in the, in the seventies and eighties for, you know, poor rural families like hers, I think, I think they, 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 they didn't want to say no. Right. I mean, it's hard to say no to those kinds of profits, she was the oldest of 13 siblings. You know, she came from this massive family. And when I got to the town, I went there with a former Honduran law enforcement official and a, and a local journalist. And the size of the church in the town that had been built by her family was the size of a cathedral, you know. And this, this town was like a 3,000 dirt road town that had all these poor houses and it was punctuated by these, these massive sort of narco mansions. Um, hers was on the way in. And, it, and, you know, it was a two-story concrete monolith with a, an, a, a pool in the middle. But um, construction had uh, had stopped because she she was the first of the Valle Cartel to get arrested. I think they arrested her either 2012 or 2013 when she was on a trip to Miami. So I'm assuming she didn't know that there were charges against her in, uh, in the US. Um, otherwise, she probably wouldn't have traveled. But her arrest basically brought down her extremely violent brothers who, who kind of behaved like Vikings in the village. She, she, you know, she brought in her son, her daughter um, got, got arrested in Honduras and sort of the whole Valle cartel sort of came tumbling down for a while. Thanks to her, really. I mean, she started it off. So she was, she, she was, wow. now uh, you mentioned she was working, uh, probably grew under the former president, Juan Orlando Hernandez. I interviewed him back in 2014 when he just took power uh, and he was like, 
um, you know, America, give us money. You know, we need you know, America, give us money. You're the ones taking all the drugs. Send us some money to fight drug trafficking. It turned out he was a big time cocaine trafficker. or He's going to be on trial to put finally this year in the United States. So that's very interesting. Um, I mean, again, do you think I mean, looking at her business, the different people you've studied, is there uh, some kind of differences you see in the way they do conduct the narco trade? Um, compared to men, or is it much of the same thing they do? So, you know, when I went to her town, the craziest thing happened, right? She was still in she was still in Houston. She'd managed to get the right to stay under CAT, this the Convention Against Torture in the US, after she came out of seven, seven or eight years of time in the US justice system. So I I end up next door to her house which is untouched no one's ransacked it unlike all unlike all the other big narco mansions and i'm sitting with her her neighbors and within five minutes her neighbor comes out from the back of the house with digna on a video phone call and she's like oh digna wants to speak to you bear in mind i'd asked her two or three times through her through her her sort of legal representatives to speak to me she hadn't so I was like, oh, I wonder if she's going to realize that I'm that annoying girl who she said no to three times. And now I'm sitting with her next door neighbors. <laughs> I remember turning around to my, <laughs> my colleagues and they were like. <laughs> um, and clearly the women, the women who I was sitting with were flagging me. Do you know what I mean? They were letting her know that I was there and I was asking questions about her. Um, and they had nothing but good things to say about Digna. You know, she built the church. She owned these coffee ranches with her family. They would they were benefactors and they would give jobs to the locals, etc. But then when I spoke to immigration lawyers in the U.S. who represented people who had fled that town um, to seek asylum in the U.S., some of them had been working actually as DEA informants to construct you know the the charges against Digna and her family there was one story that an asylum seeker told me that she had sent uh like two trucks of armed men round to her family home to shut them up when Digna found out that they were working as DEA informants she sent out a hit on them now of course people seeking asylum in the U.S. have their own access to grind right they want to make home seem as scary as possible but it seems to me that Digna was adop adopting the tactics of, of all narcos, right? Which is loyalty is such an important part of their business. And people who blab have to have to have to be kind of gotten rid of, you know. So and what I, was so what was she like on the phone? What was she like when she talked to her on the video phone? I mean, it was really weird, you know. She was like she's she was in her late fifties by the time we spoke, late late fifties, early sixties, and she seemed very discombobulated. You know, she she hadn't been long out of immigration detention. I didn't get the sense that she spoke English. We spoke in Spanish the whole time. I don't think she realized who I was, and she was like, "Oh, go see the church. I'm very proud of it." I actually visited that town with the local bishop because you know how the narcos and the Catholic Church have quite a loving relationship and he was <laughs> kind of a good intro but he was also um you know she 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 loved seeing the bishop on on the phone because he was sitting next to me and um she had a lot of love for the catholic church you know she kind of seemed like vulnerable and a bit you know one of one of the women in the room was talking about a male relative of hers who had died and she kind of you know she started crying because she was sad about it so she she didn't seem like 
uh, a kind of scary badass. Do you know what I mean? She was, she seemed very human. She didn't seem like, let's, I, I can see like um, we're approaching the end. She didn't seem like anything like Griselda Blanco, for example. <laughs> Before, right. before, Boom. yeah, Griselda yeah. Blanco, let's get in there. What, what do you before, say? yeah, be, be, before we go to Griselda Blanco, I think there's another interesting thing that you have in your book. I have it on my on my hands right now, and I remember these this part where you talk where you're talking about like how we perceive power in drug trafficking organizations or in cartel, and we receive power as violence. I mean, the more violent a one of these subjects is, uh, the more powerful we perceive. He is, and but that's that's something that different. It works different with women, with the exception being probably Griselda Blanco and probably a couple of others, few others, but notably Griselda Blanco, right? But that I think that that when you talk about the prism as for what we really perceive power, I think it's a, an interesting note to go into Griselda Blanco. Yeah, and and for example, to end on Digna, her brothers had a reputation for picking up young village girls, taking them to their mansions, having their way with them, letting their security people have their way with them, sending those girls home sort of broken and telling their families that if they reported it, they would all be killed. Now, Digna, I don't think she was involved in those, those gang events, but she definitely let them happen. So she was allowing violence to happen because it was convenient to the interests of her family and her organization. So you wow. still have to make that kind of pact with the devil that a lot of drug traffickers do and which Griselda Blanca did. So let, let's get into Griselda. So Griselda is probably the most infamous of all of the female narcas. Uh, she and there's a new TV series coming out with none other than Sofia Begara, the beautiful Colombian actress, playing the not-so-beautiful Colombian narca. Uh, but anyway, very, very famous for, among things, being known as the Black Widow for murdering her husbands, moving a lot of cocaine, being really involved in the uh, Miami cocaine cowboy wars. So so what do you make of, uh, of Griselda? Yeah, I mean, Blanco came up through a very different time as well. I mean, I think it's important to remember Latin America is still today a deeply machista society, right? But she she was back in the in the you know the 60s and the 70s when things for women were even more limited than they were. She came from grinding poverty. She was very, very poor. And I think she she allied herself with powerful criminal men right from the beginning. Um I forget the details, but she sat, she started off in like petty crime and then like she moved up. Um, there's lots of interesting details about her. I haven't seen the Netflix show, so I'm interested to see whether this features, but that she was bisexual, that she she understood um, the power of using women as well as men to achieve her, her criminal interests. Um, and yeah, I think she understood very early on. And we all know that violence is a very very established feature of a lot of latin american society but but particularly you know in very rural poor places i think she probably got used to violence from a really early age and wasn't scandalized about it in the way that some more kind of you know women from different parts of the region and different social classes might be and she learned pretty pretty early on how to use it you know and I, i've only seen the trailers for the for the netflix series but they have dulled down vergara she's not like 
a sex bomb in the way that you know the female protagonist in Narcos are. And uh, and I loved the trailer, which is you can see that the male narcos are already kind of annoyed that she's a female boss. And at that time, it was it was practically unheard of. I mean, I think now it's 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 becoming increasingly common. But back then, you would you you know it just I don't think it happened. You know, not, especially like not someone who rose to the to the fame and notoriety that she had. And she was doing this shit in the United States. I mean, she was doing a lot of crazy stuff in Miami. And she got this army as well of the Cuban Marialitos, the Cubans who come over out of prisons and stuff and just turn them all into hitmen and stuff. So she, I mean, she was doing some crazy stuff. And then she finally died herself a violent death back in Colombia, uh, buying a big bunch of meat, I think, at a store. And somebody came down a motorcycle and gunned her down. Yeah, I think she was killed standing on a street corner, right? But um, I think what's also interesting about her is, and again, like this is the case for so many women in my book that are different to Emma is, she she wasn't like stereotypically attractive. I think there's this idea that, that that's kind of a, a must have for women who make it in male industries and male environments. And like, she was clearly like, not like she was super strategic super smart totally ruthless i mean i don't know how i can't remember how many of her husbands she killed how many were there yeah i mean <laughs> there's different rumors some say it's three some say it's two a lot of them died under mysterious circumstances and it's, it's kind of it's kind of a you know uh, yeah i mean yeah she was real short kind of plump i mean you see the photos of her um but i think she was kind of uh what's the what's the uh a bit of a nympho as well i think wasn't she i think as well you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I've heard, yeah i'm interested to see how that's depicted in the series so yeah very is, is it just me who's heard like about orgies and like just a lot yeah, of they saw about in i mean these are the stories about orgies in miami mansions and you know all this kind of stuff but very quickly we've got a few minutes left we're gonna go rewind the clock you know rewind all the way back to the 1920s in lewis's town and La Nacha. Who, who's La Nacha then? Who's La Nacha? Who, who the first female queen pin all the way back? I don't know. I would jump in, uh, uh, Dad's on 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 on, on La Nacha. Do you want to but... do? It? I, I, you, I mean, it's your town, so you do it. But yeah. I think interesting <laughs> about her is since the inception of the, the narcotics trade between America and Mexico, you've had women right at the top, you know. And I think both La Nacha and um, Lola Lachata, who was another woman who was operating around that time. Both of them were women of color. They came from very poor backgrounds. Again, they were totally out, you know, they, they were totally like stepping out of their social and racial and gender expectations for women of that time. Yeah, no, definitely. And and, and one, one interesting thing about La Nacha is that a lot of the people thought that it was her husband actually the one owning the the business and running the whole thing, but it, it always has been La Nacha. There there's a lot of rumors in between the um especially especially within like Sinaloa cartel henchmen in in in, in Culiacán specifically people that are related, some people that are sicarios like low level people that that's the same way they feel about the sister of El Mayo Modesta Zambada. They mm -hmm. they feel that she's actually the one owning the whole 
business and the one who started the business in the first place and then brought El Mayo into it. And she's still at it because uh, she's still, I mean, she, she's still, if, if you look in the um, property taxes, whatever in Mexico, most of the properties are under Modesta's name and, and you, El Mayo is nowhere to be seen, which is, which is interesting. And I think that was happening back then, but it had to go through several, even decades for people to actually recognize that it was La Nacha all the time. And she was the biggest one there. And El Pavlote was basically just uh, her husband, right? Like, I mean, he was part of the business, but he was a police officer, right? And then he died. And, you know, the, the two things to end, because I know that we're running out of time, but one thing that's super interesting is that all women without fail brought their kids into the biz- the family business and were judged for it. You know, you often see the narco mami Monica. You're never going to see people calling pa- uh, Chapo el narco papi or questioning his value as a father, <laughs> despite the fact that his three sons are now the most wanted people in uh, in Latin America. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just I just love that kind of... That, okay, that. Just, just, just to cut out, because we're about to cut out any second. So, yeah. great stuff. Narcas, check out the book. Check out Debs's, Deborah's uh substack lewis's substack lewis's buy me a coffee my own buy me a coffee all our stuff and it is cartel reports it's our crude ever expanding venture so boo out outro boom <laughs> the boom out so we're booming out with uh narcas book on camera see you guys on the next one thanks guys that was fun see you later then and just say keep at it uh, we're still giving us more time here so still rolling away all the links below if you got this far and uh, yeah we love you